What's up, motherfuckers? We are back, alternate take, with another episode, and um, it's good to be back, dude. I got a special guest for you guys this time, and I'm very excited to do this episode. With me, I got retired detective Gil Carrillo. Sergeant, actually, was it? Lieutenant. Lieutenant. Retired Lieutenant Gil Carrillo. Thanks for coming in, Gil. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. So uh, I actually asked you about a year ago if you wanted to be on the podcast, which I've known you through a family family connections or whatever. And um, it's actually better that you come on now because I remember a year ago you told me that we have some works going on with Netflix and, uh, you know, I can't do it right now, obviously NDA and all those things, but uh, it's actually better you came on now. It's actually more people know who you are now, which is crazy. Well, it's better for you. It's better for me. It's better for Netflix, really. Yeah, honestly, uh, they were they were holding the control over me, and plus at that time we had to wait until after the documentary came out because they were working on it and they didn't want any information out about it. And now that it's out, uh, now we can uh, mention it, and so it has worked out fine. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, when did they come with you with the idea? They actually started the idea over two years ago. A uh, writer who was writing at the time for Chicago PD, the television program. Yeah. He was writing and he had a co-writer with him. And he called me up one night. I knew his whole family, this writer, uh, Brian Gracias. And Brian, I knew his whole family, his uncle, his mom, his his grandparents, his other uncles, everybody, and he was a member of he was a member of law enforcement. He got injured on duty, so he left law enforcement and went into writing. And he just contacted me and said, "You know, I've been doing this stuff, and we don't see uh, anything on television with Latinos in it." He says, "I want to come up with an idea and have a Hispanic as a role model, a leader." And so if you don't mind, I'd like to take you to dinner, you and a co-writer, and we'll just go talk about it. Yeah. Why not? Free dinner, free drinks. Yeah, let's, fuck let's, it. Let's go. Uh, we did. And over the years, due to the nature of the work that I had done as a homicide investigator, I've had, uh, I've done several, we call docudramas, where people portray to be you, and then they interview you on the side, and uh I'd done several of those over the years, and a lot of companies were calling. They wanted to do more and more, and I just was turning them all down now. And uh, because they make money and I don't, you know, it's it's uh, not a lot of fun after a while. Right. And, uh, and they don't all get aired. Some, you know, they're just trying to get something writers, and so I turned them down. These guys told me about it. And the next day, he calls me up after the dinner. At, said the guy loved you and he wants to write something up and I said I really don't care I don't I don't care that much about uh, television I don't care about the money I've got a retirement uh, all I want is leave a legacy for my family and that started and heard nothing I told my wife she said how'd it go I said I don't know same shit different day <laughs> uh, about a year and a half later two years I get called by the second guy that we went out to dinner with that night, Tim Walsh. And uh, he said, hey, like to follow up with that first dinner we had, I want to take you, let's go out and have dinner. I want you to introduce you to someone else. That's when he introduced me to a gentleman by the name of Tiller Russell. And uh, Tiller Russell's the writer, director. He's the boss, and he's just such a down-to-earth, 
guy. Uh, can't say enough good stuff about him or anybody in their staff. I mean, Tim Walsh uh, and Tiller have been so good. They're so down to earth, and they, you know, it's like uh, Tim Walsh said it. He said, "Well, you know, you're not anybody." He says, "Your family." He says, "We just took a liking to you and your story, and it, it's real. We could see it." And so that's what that's what started. He offered the deal. Then I want to do this and. He said, are you interested? Reality's are. I told him, I don't give two shits about this stuff. <laughs> but it's your your gig. You know, if you want to put, you think you got something, uh, I'm willing to go with you. I like you. And so we shook hands. And he says, I'll have people get in touch with you. To, we'll get this written up. I said, for the time being, my handshake's good enough. I'm not going to go with anybody else. Because somebody else was offering me uh, something at that time. They oh, okay. And when they heard I was going to meet... Uh, meet somebody, and then they called me up and they said, hey, so you said you were going to go meet. How did it go? I said, well, I met a man named Tiller Russell. And everybody just starts backing off right away. And they said, well, hey, did you sign anything? I said, no. They said, okay, don't sign here. We're going to send you a contract right now. Look at it over. I said, you, oh, don't, shit. you don't need to send a contract. They said, just look at it. And they were offering me to be co-producer and 10% of the action. Holy shit. And... It all sounds good. And they called back and said, okay, did you get a chance to read it? I said, yeah. He said, you can sign it. I said, no. I said, because co-producer doesn't mean nothing to me. I don't know what that means in the industry. I know it's somebody up at the top. Yeah. I, I said, and then 10% of the action. 10% of nothing is how much? <laughs> I said, because right now you don't have a deal. You're trying to shop it around. Right. So 10% of nothing is nothing. So no thank you. I've shook his hand. It's done deal. You don't have to call me anymore. And that started it. And it's the best move I've ever made. Hell yeah. That's awesome. He's a great guy. The documentary speaks for itself. I don't I, I called up Tim Walsh uh, and I said, Hey, what does all this mean? I have three adult children, 43, 46, and 49. I said, and they're into the social media stuff. I'm not. But they're telling me this thing is trending number one in the nation. And I and he says, trending number one is trending number one in the nation. It's number six in the world. Holy shit. And I said, what does that mean? It doesn't mean shit to me. What does it mean? And he says, it means that Netflix is very happy, number one. And I said, yeah, but does this stuff like, it's a documentary. Does this, is this the kind of stuff that gets nominated for Oscars? And he says... I don't know. It's uncharted territory, even for me. I've never been in this position. Fuck. He says, I do know that we're getting calls. People from all over the business are calling us. And so it sounds like uh, it's going, it went well. Yeah. There's still, since it's come out, it's been a number uh, top 10. It's still, I think my son told me yesterday, it's at number nine or maybe number 10 now. Right. But it rode number one for several days, then it jumped down to four and held its own there for a while. Unbelievable. I don't know. I just know I'm just retired guy sitting at home. At home, I'm still dad. I'm still yeah. AU and everything else. The wife's, the newness is worn off. I'm back in the doghouse again. So she, she runs the house. That's awesome. And for those of you guys who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the Netflix documentary, The Night Soccer, which is basically a whole documentation of uh, Richard Ramirez in the uh, 1980s. But um, I liked actually how they 
they did the documentary because they got real personal with it, which I thought was cool. They they did. He told me uh, others had done needs that is homework, and he says others have done cheap movies, others have done docudramas. He says, and everything's about Richard. Everything's about the killings. He says we want to look at it from an investigative standpoint because we can see how it traumatized you, how it, how it impacted you and your family. Yeah. And that's the story we want to tell. We want to tell what it's like to be an investigator and not only what you see on TV, the racing around in cars, we want to tell us what the real life of a homicide detective is. Right. I think that's what everyone wanted to hear too. It's You hear these stories all the time and it's – you always hear the killer's perspective. That's great. But when you got to see, like, your upbringing, when you talked about um, you going to the military and the neighborhood you grew up in, and then um, all those things, to me, it made it, like, way better. It made sure. the documentary just awesome because it, now it, it really makes what you are now. I mean, people are – they feel like they know you just through a documentary, and that's why everyone's reaching out to you and all these podcasts. And that's, That is true. I, I've had uh, – I've never lost my faith in humanity after all the years of law enforcement. I spent 38 years in law enforcement Damn. and never lost my faith in humanity. And as a result of this piece of work, uh, I've received uh, requests to be friends and messages from literally all over the world. I, I have a difficult time on a daily basis just to respond, and I respond to each and every one of them. You know, I when I say I respond, let me take that back. Whereas before, I would not friend anybody on Facebook unless I knew them personal. Even my kids' friends, I wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> accept them as friends. But I explained to my wife, I'm not better than anybody else. I'm just another human being. And if these people are taking the time to write to say something, well, now that I've be thrown my name in the hat, so to speak, throw my name in the ring, now it belongs to the public. It behooves me to respond back to them because I don't want people out there in the world saying, ah, he's an arrogant, pompous guy. It's all gone to his head. So I literally read every one of them, and unless there's something in there that I can detect that's dangerous, I respond to each one of them and tell them thank you. Uh, I'm very humbled at the fact that they would take the time out of their life to merely say thank you and some of the nice things they are saying. So it's it's been nice. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper, too, in this podcast, more about your career, more in general, just because uh, I feel like you can learn everything you can learn about the Nice Stalker and its case just from the documentary. So it would be kind of... Sure, watch the doc- documentary. It'll tell the story. Yeah, exactly. You know, tune in. It's obviously one of the highest rated things right now. And um, and then ask your parents about it. I'm, everyone's parents has a story about that. I know for sure. Mine, I, I knew a lot about it before just because my mom used to talk about it all the time. My dad and say like, you know, we couldn't sleep with our windows open. Everyone was scared. It was hottest summer ever. And we're, we're a bunch of Mexicans that can't afford ACs. It was the hottest goddamn summer ever. Like it was... You know, a lot of outside playing with the water hose, stuff like that. But um, so, I mean, I've been hearing about these stories my whole life. And then my dad grew up in East L.A. and my mom in Pico Rivera. So, I mean, this was like very close to home for them. So, you know. Good good place to grow up in that city, Pico Rivera. Yeah, it is. That's where I'm from. No way. Yeah. that's I played ball there my whole life as a kid. Right there in Rivera Park. 
Huh? Yeah, so it's uh, was, that Rivera was the south end of town. I was a little further up. North. Oh, okay. My wife is from Pico Viejo. Okay. And I lived in the part that was called Pico Nuevo. So I was up around Whittier Boulevard in Paramount. Oh, okay. And nice. My wife was down around Beverly Boulevard in Paramount. Oh, okay. That area up there. Nice. Down there. So it was. Uh, it was great upbringing. That's it's a what, good city. I still love it. That's what started my. Uh, that's what started everything for me in life, uh, and I was honored. I got a few years ago. They asked me, probably about five years ago, to be the keynote speaker at a Veterans Day ceremony. Wow! And I got to get up there, and I told them, uh, "There's a." Someone once said that it takes a village to raise a child. And city of Pico Rivera was my village. And they took care of me. And when I was in Vietnam, they sent, I, I wrote a letter home because the guys in my unit, we got together and we helped start an orphanage. And so I wrote a letter and asked my family to get the word out that I needed clothes, anything. So city of Pico Rivera put it in the mail, put it out in their local newspaper. And I received stuff from Pico. Wow. And uh, back then, when you were a kid growing up, I don't care, anywhere in Pico, people would see you. And on my block, it, the adults ran ran the streets. And without hesitation, if they chewed you out or needed to put their hands on you, it wasn't a problem. Yeah. You know, your parents encouraged it. That's how you were brought up. Definitely. Unfortunately, <laughs> I started hanging around with the guys on the block. And pretty soon, you know, things are getting rough. And I'm not, I'm not passing. I wasn't going to graduate. Uh, from high school, and there was a, a cop, there was a deputy sheriff by the name of Al Arias. And Al used to come around doing regular patrol work, what I thought was being a good guy who just really doing good police work. And he'd come by and he'd jam us and he'd put us all on the hood of his radio car and pat us down. And he was doing it to stay safe, but he did it in a manner where it was cool. You know, we didn't mind what he was doing. And yeah. So we went along, and he was always trying to tell us, you know, don't be don't, don't be jerks, you know, get out of this. Get off the block, do something, you know, stay away. You guys are getting into trouble. And if there's anything I can ever do to help you out, he says, I'll give you my time. Well, my uh, high school English teacher said, you're failing. You don't pass English. You don't graduate. And I had... Uh, four sisters before me, everybody, you know, I would be the first one yeah, in the family not to make no it. There's no option. Yeah, you have to. And I had two younger sisters still going. So I said, I, she said, write a term paper and I'll, I'll let you pass. So I wrote a term paper, but I asked him, I said, would you help me write it? I want to write it on cops. So he helped me write the paper. I submitted it. I got my D in English and I was happy. I didn't care. Oh, yeah. I graduated. Yeah. But at that time, he told my parents, sign for him to get off the streets or he's going to end up dead or in prison. And so they signed paperwork, and at age 17, I went into the Army. Wow. And, and what year was that? That was 1967. Holy shit. So, you, so how long were you in a, when you, Vietnam then? I, was, I had turned 18 November 29th, and my, the first week of February, uh, I was in Vietnam. Wow. Just like that. Just like that. Wow. That's and insane. And that was right at the beginning. If anybody reads anything on history, matter of fact, today may be an anniversary date. Uh, uh, 
February 1st uh, of the 1968 Tet Offensive. It was a big move by the North Vietnamese Army. And the South Vietnamese uh, forces that were not pro-American, uh, that they launched a great big attack throughout the country. So I got there, two months of being 18 years of age, get in my hooch the first night. Uh, it was a, We had bunk beds in there, and all of a sudden I hear this explosions going off, and I hear sirens going off, scared the bejesus out of this kid. And I get down, I bump my head on a two-by-four, I get down, <laughs> I low-crawl on concrete, and by the time I get to the door to get outside to get in the bunker, because they already showed me, okay, kid, we have a bunker right out here. You hear anything going on, just get out, get in the bunker. And so I got to the door, and there was another guy standing there, and he's looking at me. He says, you can get up now, kid. It's over with. He says, welcome to the NOM. Oh, my God. It's like and a movie. It's just, just like a movie. And I was the new kid, and I was scared shitless, and that began my Vietnamese tour. Wow. And what Vietnam did, uh, let me express, there are no winners in war. Both sides lose. And I wouldn't wish war on anybody. But I'm glad I had the opportunity to serve because it helped mature me. It gave me a new appreciation on life, gave me goals. And so when I got out of the Army in 1970, I had three goals in life. One, I wanted to go to college. At that time in my life, I thought only rich white people went to college. Nobody in my family had ever gone to college, and nobody went after me. I wanted to go to college, so I got to start at Rio Hondo. Nice. I'm a roadrunner, too. I started at Rio Hondo College. So that was goal number one, and I started that right away. I also wanted to become a cop. I wanted to become a deputy and give back what was given to me. Al Arias helped save my life, save me. And by the way, anybody on the block that I grew up in, if they went into the armed forces, they all came out and led productive lives. Those that didn't are either dead or in prison, just like Al had said. Wow. And so I come back. And uh, goal number two is to be a cop, accomplish that. Goal number three was to start dating my ex-girlfriend who had written me a Dear John when I was in Vietnam. <laughs> you know, the old, sorry, this ain't working out. We're, we're done. Yeah. I'm with somebody else. See ya. <laughs> well, needless to say, my heart was broken and it was really tough. Right. But I came back, and vengeance was going to be mine. <laughs> I wanted to get her eaten out of the palm of my hand yeah, and then break it off with her and watch her suffer like I had suffered. Yeah, I got out in June of 1970. By September of 1970, I had her eaten out of the palm of my hand. And December 26, 1970, booyah, we got married. <laughs> And we just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. That's awesome. Actually, I do remember reading your wife when I was a kid, and she was very, like, she reminded me of my grandma, same way. Like, the 
you need anything to eat me home that, that very like comfortability where you'd feel like they're your they're your grandma that's what it feels yeah. like you know she's always a very nice lady that's good yeah when you um i let her live there for free <laughs> it's very noble of you it's very noble um so when you did get out of the military, how quick was it before you decided to join? Like, um, did it happen right away? Did your name already sign up? Or you had to take exams at that time. I qualified. Uh, uh, I took the written for the sheriff's department and failed it. And I start. I started college. I got out in June. I started college right away, and I went right away to take the test, but. I wasn't prepared to take the test. Remember, I was no good in high school. I didn't have no study habits, nothing. And I'm just starting college, so I took that and I failed. And I studied a little more, started getting working harder, and took the test for a second time and passed it. And so I actually started uh, with the Sheriff's Department sworn in October 1st, 1971. Wow. October 1st, 1971. That's awesome. So it's been a good run. And did you find it uh, extreme, like, or did you find it beneficial when you, uh, I saw in the documentary, it said you were uh, patrolling at uh, the East LA station. Was that helpful for you, like, since your neighborhood was basically just right there? Sure. It, it, it helped. It, it helped me immensely because then I could relate. I was selected to work their uniform gang detail. And so we concentrated mostly on herding up the gang members, you right. know, keeping them under control. And then I got out of the gangs. I became a training officer and was just working regular patrol. And then they asked me to come back in gangs, and I told them I didn't want to. And they said, why? I said, because I don't believe in the way you work them. You know, you can't – gang members don't like talking to people in uniform. Yeah. If you want to relate to them, take off the badge, you know, take off the clothes, just dress like them or just have – soft clothes on and they said well that's what we want to do we want to start up a unit like that we want you to read it lead it and the reason i could get along with them because i knew how to talk yeah you know i you know so about the local me porta poco and the sky is blue i say i used to be from the barrio <laughs> you know so i knew how to i knew how to talk slang like them yeah so it was cool and before you know it uh my partner was a great guy art ariano and he had green eyes, and everybody called him and said, "Oh, green eyes." And I was the Kukui, so it was Kukui and Green Eyes were partners out there. Yeah, we did some good work, and we were able to gather some good intelligence, and everything worked out fine for us. That could be a TV series in its own. Yeah. Honestly, just like those two characters, it's exactly what you think of, like the good cop, bad cop, or whatever. But That'd be awesome. He would definitely be the good cop. <laughs> Art was always a good guy. Yeah. He was. I was the guy that would, I was the kukui. Yeah. I, I don't talk to me <laughs> like that. And it, it wasn't nice. That's funny. That's My dad actually, uh, he said the same thing because um, he's from that part of uh, East LA too. And I remember when he's, uh, he's in law enforcement as well. And when he was doing the same gig on that same area, he said that was like huge. Like when he was there, it was like, I, I got like you know a, in a fight on that back alley right there. I know I know the owner of that donut shop. I know like this is my neighborhood. This is it sure adds a huge element to success, which it, is great. It was, which led me to. Uh, it takes an average minimal of fifteen years to get up a sheriff's homicide, 
it's an elite group of investigators. And because of all the gang work I'd done out there, they'd have, it was a gang murder capital of the world. And homicide investigators would go out there, they'd come to me for help and I'd help get information for them. I, a couple of the investigators would let me take on their suspects before they did. And so it was a natural progression. My, my goal and dreams were to one day work homicide once I got on and learned a little bit about it. So with a little less than 10 years, I was called and asked to go on up to homicide. They called and asked for me. Wow. And so I was ecstatic. You know, I couldn't, I uh, couldn't believe that I was there a year later after being there. I still couldn't believe I was there. Yeah. And, uh, I used to lecture. I've lectured all over the place, and I'd tell people, uh, students. I've lectured at UCLA, USC, and it was difficult to get them to believe that every day I went to work is like going to Disneyland. Yeah, because it was fun. I knew it was going to be more fun when I got there. And you work all day. All of a sudden, you're tired. You get a little hungry. You know, you're at Disneyland. You get hungry, so you get something to eat. Then you go back at it, and before you know it, it's dark outside and the day's gone, you're saying, geez, where did it go? It's time to go home. You're tired and you're dark. Go home. Yeah. And wait for, can't wait till tomorrow. I really like that part of the documentary. There's a brief part where it was like mentioned where like we went to this restaurant, but they only let certain people in. And then, you know, we thought the day was over and then we're having drinks and we're like, hey, stop drinking, come back. Like, All right, we have to go back. That's what it was. That's really damn cool. Yeah, it's we, not, it's not like, I don't know if that's really like that as much anymore. Well, you know? it, it, no, it isn't because uh, I know it's not. But the place we used to go was right there. For anybody familiar with the downtown uh, Chinatown area, there's Felipe's down there. Everybody goes and gets a roast beef sandwich. And they're, yeah. and they're over full of old parking across the street. There was a door, and the door had a little piece of metal on it. And it was the lower half because you go up one block, you go half a block up, and that's Spring Street, and it's a higher level. So you'd go knock on the door, and the old lady that ran the ran a little bar, her name was Flora, and she had to be about 150 years old at that time. <laughs> and she'd open that peephole, and if she recognized you, she'd let you in. If she didn't, you didn't come in. That's insane. It was that simple. That's and so fucking cool. It, it was cool. The top part of that, which opened up on Spring, was a regular restaurant and bar and that was called Amy Lou's and uh, when we were angry because then Mayor Feinstein had released the information yeah. on, the, on a shoe print we went down and I said let's get out of here let's go get a drink so we went to Amy Lou's and it just so happened that our captain was there and he was having a drink and we bumped into him we said okay we got to get this off our chest we start drinking we tell him you need to get to the sheriff, then Sherman Block, who needs to get something out, get politicians out of our case. This is killing us. And so he left, and he came back. A, he called us up a while later. And he said, stop drinking, get some food, and be back up here in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so we did what he said. That's man. awesome. How was a, how was a Sherman Block? I, I hear a lot of people that, were, that have been in law enforcement for a long time mention like a like that era was always kind of very influential to them as part of their careers. I, I, I don't know anything about him, but... Sherman Block was a good man. He was a good man, a great leader. Uh, unfortunately, at times, I don't know how long, 
but he's encircled by other executives and the department it's difficult to get word from the bottom level what I call the swine level mm-hmm. from the patrol aspect yeah. from the jail aspect it's hard to get your opinion to the big boys because it gets filtered first by what they'd have a station captain that a captain has a commander that commander has a chief the chief have has an assistant sheriff and then there's the under sheriff then there's the sheriff yeah so it is so filtered so they surround him so he only hears the good stuff that they want him to hear and he doesn't hear all the problems and I had a very good friend of mine who's now retired with Sheriff's, with Sheriff Block's driver for a while. And he said, I can remember him very distinctly getting angry and saying, come on, let's get out of here. And he left the uh, then, uh, I don't remember if it was the Hall of Justice or if he was up Monterey Park at the time. Mm-hmm. But he left and he was angry because he had just found something out that he should have known about a lot ahead of time and he was cussing and he was saying god damn it uh he says you know there's only about three or four people in this department that'll tell me the truth without hesitation and he says and i'm letting you know gil you're one of the guys he said would tell him the truth and i i'd tell the truth to anybody as long as they ask for it yeah. i wouldn't give my opinion but if they ask for it, then I'd give it to them or I tell them what needs to be done. Right. Well, that's what they had done to Mr. Block. They had surrounded him and his ex- other executives were cutting information from him. And so, but he was a great boss, knew, uh, tried to keep his finger on as much as possible. Right. And that's the problem with at least a little bit with uh, power positions is like, you get a lot, so many people trying to just kiss your ass that they're afraid to tell you the truth, or sure. you don't even know who's really your friend or who's what, because they're just gonna yes men. You have yes people all around you. They exactly. just tell you bullshit. That's it exactly. When I uh, time that I chose to retire, and uh, the then sheriff Lee Baca was a little upset that I was retiring because he said you told me you'd stay as long as I did. At that time, I was number three in seniority on the department. Holy crap. And uh, I said, it's time to go. Yeah. You need a yes man, and I'm not a yes man. Never have been, never will be. And I don't feel like bucking heads with anybody. Therefore, it's just time is right. I got to go. Right. And and I did. They were trying to put, uh, they were trying to cut the budget any way they could. Like, they're doing today, you know, the, you know, cutbacks and everything else. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like the way it was going to impact Homicide Bureau. And I wasn't going to have my guys working for free. And essentially that's what it was going to turn out to be. Some guys who were going to be asking work, doing some investigation free. I said, I can't be part of it. Yeah. Not only is it not right, it's a violation of federal law. Right. So, the means doesn't justify uh, the end results. Yeah. So it was easy for me to walk away. Easy. In fact, that's my approach with women. It's the same thing. <laughs> I do the same exactly. I'm like, look, I can't do this. I'm not a yes man. I'm just telling them straight up. And as it is what it is. But um, yeah. do you remember um, 
your first case when you got to homicide? Do you remember that by any chance? Or like your earliest cases that stood out to you? I can I can remember uh I can remember the very first case. Matter of fact, one of the deputies involved that had just recently passed away, uh, and, and it was it was a nothing case. It was a uh, suicide up at Crystal Lake, right after uh, you know the snow was still around, laying around, and uh, there he was in all his pleasantness. And there was a radio car parked up there, and I went walking around to a radio car, and the door was open. But as I got close to that radio car, a dog. Oh, fuck Started that. barking and sounded mean. Well, this guy was a canine unit. Scared the bejesus out of me, and I just could not believe. <laughs> I thought, I'm dead. And so, uh, as it turns out, he thought it was funny. You know, just his little puppy. And So I, I remember it, and that was my first case when I went to the autopsy. Uh, I told the uh, pathologist... I told the doctor, I said, doctor, this is my first autopsy. I said, if there's anything of interest that you may, uh, you think it's interesting, would you point it out to me, please, so I can learn as much as possible to get down here? And the good doctor said, well, you see these two maggots over here? And I said, yeah, she says, they're currently engaged in an act of sexual intercourse. They're fornicating. You may want to take <laughs> note of that. And I could see then this is going to be a different world altogether. Yeah. So I... That, that was my very first case. The, the case uh, that I remember that got me an early reputation there was a uh, lady that had killed her kid. I thought she had killed her kid, but there were no obvious signs of trauma, and she said it, it looked like a SIDS death, and that's what they were trying to call it. And... So I called down to the my office and I asked for the senior most investigator up there. And I ran a set of circumstances down. And I said, my problem being is I I don't want to advise this lady of her constitutional rights. That would be adding trauma onto trauma, the loss of a child. Now I'm going to become accusatory. I said, but if I don't, she's a national, she's a Mexican national. She's going to just boogie on back to Mexico. And he said, kid, that's a tough one. Why don't you speak to your lieutenant? And my lieutenant happened to be this guy's former partner. Oh, okay. And so I called up my lieutenant and I told him, I said, Lieutenant Fitzgerald, here are the circumstances. I ran it by him and I said, this is what I'm thinking. And he says, kid, that is a tough one. When you make your decision, you let me know how it turned out. <laughs> Uh, and the decision was, I ended up doing a good interview with her, and I advised her of her constitutional rights. And I went to the autopsy first, and we found a couple of marks, but they were not death-causing. And I could see where two thumbs, when they moved the baby around on the autopsy table, I said, that's it. She snapped the head. So I went oh, back and I, and I talked to her and got her to cop out to killing the kid. Fuck. And when I did that, I learned that she had, there was another child of hers that had died two and a half years prior. And so 
I said, I want to talk to you. I'll be back tomorrow and talk to you about Sandra. And she assured me, okay, you can come talk to me. We can talk about Sandra right now. Sandra, I did nothing to. Sandra had already been written off as a SIDS death. So I went and did some studying on Sandra, and I was convinced she had killed Sandra too. Went back and got her to cop out to the murder of her first child. Wow. Two and a half years prior. So all of a sudden, the new kid, everybody thought, you know, the older, hey, this guy's a baby expert. Yeah. You know, and it was not a baby expert. It was just the ability to talk to people. And then, and she was a Mexican national, so using the Spanish language. And and right after that, I got another one. Then were, guys were calling me out to help them go look at another kid. And it, and it wasn't anything special. I, I just, it's much easier to talk to somebody in my opinion, and uh, you treat them nice, treat them like, you know, it's not every day that they're bad, you know, they're just human, and treat them like you'd like to be treated if you were in their shoes. Yeah. And they'll talk to you. If you yell at them or get mean with them or hammer a tabletop, slap a tabletop, that just scares them, and that makes them clam up. It's true. So, it's definitely true, especially, I mean, I would imagine it. Is exaggerated in law enforcement for sure, but even on a basic human level, I mean, like me, me and my brother always had like this uh, approach to like if my sister ever bought home a, a boyfriend, we're like, just let him, you don't have to jam him, just leave, let him be, because I want to see what this motherfucker's about. I want to see his true colors. If if I'm aggressive or any of that stupid shit, then like, he might just never show who he really is. Exactly. You know. So, so I used to uh, teach interviews and interrogations later on, and. Uh, just much easier to go soft approach. You can always get mad. You can always get tough. But if you start off low key, much easier. It's harder to get soft after you've been angry. Yeah, 100%. That's so, true. So how many years um, until you promoted to, uh, from just being a detective in homicide until you promoted to a sergeant? I was there uh, 19 years. Oh, shit. As a... Uh, Deputy investigator, but there's a difference between an investigator there and an investigator uh, within our department. You, I was grandfathered in because it came right after I got there, March 23rd of 1981, and that July 1st, they enacted a new thing they called bonus deputies. So there's bonus one and a bonus two, and so I was. I got grandfathered in to be a bonus two because that's a bonus two position. So now all of a sudden, not only am I happy working where I'm working as a homicide investigator, we're going to make it, we're going to make you even happier. We're going to give you more money. Hell yeah. Without having to take a test or anything. So I went from being a deputy to being paid top step sergeant. Holy shit. So it's like being a sergeant without having to take a test. You know, you work for it. And I did that for 19 years. And then in 2000, I went, uh, I was asked to go on loan. I was still assigned to Homicide Bureau, but I, was, I went on loan to work directly for the sheriff. And during that time, which was a great gig, uh, not only for me, but for the department, because when I spoke to you earlier about the, cert, the sheriff being encircled with on any information, getting to them from the bottom to the top. I became that conduit. I was assigned to the office of the sheriff on loan, and I would go out to each one of our commands, each one of the stations, 
and I'd hit all three shifts and say, what are your concerns about the department? They would tell me what their concerns were. Uh, very simply, hey, our cars look like shit and they run like shit. And what are you going to do about that? And so I'd write the stuff up, make them in a question form. And then the sheriff would come back out there about two weeks after I was there. And we'd have a unit meeting and he'd address the issues. Of course, they were all anonymous. So they would address the issues. He would address the issues that the deputies had brought up. The captain from the station, nor his sergeants, lieutenants, nobody knew what was going to be asked because this was for the deputies. And made a lot of friends. A lot of people were happy. They were getting stuff that wasn't getting done. Concerns about what was happening at the station, captains would get an earful. You know, it was a... Uh, it was a great thing that was going on. So I did that for two years. Uh, during that time, that's when I had uh, studied. It's the first time I had studied for the sergeant's exam. When the sheriff asked me, uh, before I went on loan, he asked me where I stood on the sergeant's list in casual conversation when he came down to the homicide bureau to talk. And I advised him that I wasn't. And when asked why not, I said, because I didn't take the test. Because, you know, you you take the test, you got to leave. That's policy. Mm -hmm. And I said, I have no desire to leave. I'm making top step sergeant's pay. I don't punch a clock. I don't have to citizen complaints. I don't have to supervise. Why would I want to leave? Yeah. And you're getting the, you're getting the pay, right? Yeah, and I'm getting the pay. And, I, and he says, the only reason to do that is to make lieutenant, which would help you out better in retirement. And he says, and I won't make you leave. I said, okay. Now, yeah. Got hey, my there was a guy now. named Sherm Block. That was his policy. Now that I know your policy, I'll file and study. And that's what I did. I filed and I studied. I studied hard. I even went through some self-hypnosis uh, training. I, no I, shit. Yeah, I did. I did as much as possible. Do you think it worked? No doubt in my mind it did. Oh, shit. And so I made sergeant. And I made sergeant while I was still assigned to him. They uh, then asked me, what do you want to do? You know, well, personnel called me up and they said, where would you like to be assigned? And what are your choices? And I said, okay, let me get back at you. And I talked to the sheriff's aide, who was a commander. And uh, he said, well, Gil, he says, I think I just heard the sheriff asking you to get some work done, you know, next month. And he wants you to plan to go to these stations. And I said, yeah. He said, well, it doesn't sound like he wants you to go. And uh, if he doesn't want you to go, you don't have to go. Uh, and if you stick around, then you got to get uh, the next exam would be the lieutenant's exam. And you know if you're working up here, they have something within the sheriff's department. It's called appraisal promotability. And so at a station level, you know, there are so many lieutenants there, so many sergeants there. Let's say they have 10 sergeants at a, uh, at a unit. And out of those 10 sergeants, the captain has to make a, he has to decide who's going to get 100 for an appraisal of promotability. Yeah. And usually you, they're good for about three of them. And he says, so... 
you're throwing your name in the hat with a bunch of other sergeants out there. He says, you stay here. He says, you know you're guaranteed a, just about a guaranteed 100 because you do good work, everybody likes you, and there right. is no competition. You know, you, you got it. So that's what I did. I stood there uh, for another two and made lieutenant. And the lieutenant, they transferred me back to Homicide Bureau. Wow. So That's it was, awesome. It was. It was great, great gig, great move. I was lucky. So with your uh, with your experiences in Vietnam and then going through the whole uh, the whole Night Stalker case and all those things, um, at this point you're already mentally like just fucking squared away. You have nothing. To, you you handle these things pretty well. But I liked in the documentary where they touched upon how even if you handled it well, your family members at home might not be. Because sure. they're they're more worried about you and uh, and so on. So since the documentary came out, like have your kids and all that like kind of relived it, going, man, I remember that. Did they like ever mention like how how about affected them? Hey, you know that particular case, we never talked about it much, and even to this day, you know, probably my my grandson, uh, no, none of them do. You know, we yeah. never discussed discussed it whether they haven't wanted to or I haven't wanted to, you know, right. whatever driven it, there's no, no reason for me to bring it up to them. Of course, yeah. And they've just never inquired. Now that this documentary came up, I know I, when I saw the documentary for the first time, uh, I felt terrible. And it brought tears to my eyes to see how I neglected my family. Mm -hmm. I was focused on capturing one guy, the killer. And as a result of that, I didn't care about my house. I didn't care about my kids. I didn't care about anything. I'm working 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Fuck. And my focus was a killer. So I didn't, if my wife told me, you know, and one day she told me, she says, you know, I caught my 13-year-old crying in the bedroom at your mom's house. Mm -hmm. I said, why was she crying? She says, she finally confessed that she was just crying because she missed you and she wished this case would be over with. She just wants her daddy home. And that just broke my heart yeah. then. But I hung up the phone and I was so angry at my wife. Why are you telling me this stuff right now? I don't need more yeah. pressure. Yeah. And so it's like you got your job. You take care of the kids in the house. I got my job. I need to get this killer to keep you guys safe. Right. Well, I didn't realize what kind of pressure she was under until I watched this documentary. And I felt terrible, and I had to apologize to her and tell her I was sorry because I hadn't thought about the fear factor. She was just afraid not only from Richard, but she was afraid. She said uh, she was afraid that I might have a couple of drinks and I'm exhausted and wreck on the way home. And so that, so I had to apologize to her. Yeah. So they did. Now... They talk about it. Now my kids uh, talk about it. The social media stuff. Unbelievable. Uh, it's gone nuts for them as well. Kids from their elementary school, you know, are saying, God, we didn't know your dad was all that and a bag of chips, you know, yeah. whatever they whatever they say. Yeah. And so they're remembering. And they don't remember everything. They remember some. They just don't talk about it much. That's good. I mean, that means obviously that's a good thing. That obviously means that they're mentally tough people, which is great. Sure. To me, it's it's a lot like being a like a passenger in a car. 
when someone is very confident behind the wheel, I'm fucking not. Because they're driving fast, 85, 90 on a freeway, but I'm the passenger. I have no control. Mm-hmm. When I'm driving, I'm like, this is normal. This speed's normal. I'm comfortable. I don't give a shit who's next to me. I know I'm being safe. So, But same speed, same situation. You were just in the seat next to it. It's way different when you're observing. Sure. When I knew I was under control, I knew I was packing a gun. I was safe. I knew what I had to do to stay safe. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't know what that. Right. And so it was tough. Yeah, it was it was tough on her. So, um, how's how's a uh, how's it been so far right now? Post this, is there is there talks about anything going forward about like maybe continuing this, or is it like just too projected? We don't know yet. It, I really don't know. You know, over the mm-hmm. years, I found everybody has they want to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know they're working on stuff, but the way it actually works. To my minimal knowledge, the way it works is somebody comes up with an idea. In this case, the writer director, you know, they came up with an idea for the documentary. Mm-hmm. Then they got to pitch it to the people that are going to be doing all the filming. So that they go it's pitch a long it process. to a production company. And the production, once they get a production company to back them up, then they have to go pitch it for television to a network HBO, Amazon, Showtime. Netflix, they pushed it all over. Netflix came in with the best deal, obviously. They signed with them. They went with them. They're the ones put up the money. They're, because of all the attention it's got, they're working on something else. And so now because of the success that this one had, They've obviously got a production company that says, yeah, we'll back your play again. Right, yeah. And anything they do, Netflix has the first right to refusal to say, no, we don't want it, or yeah, we'll do it again. But this guy, the the director, he's got a good track record for any of your listeners and yourself. Uh, I believe it's on Amazon. Uh, it's called uh, The Last Narc, mm-hmm. and it's a documentary on the assassination of Kiki Camarena, the DEA agent that got killed in Mexico. Oh, okay. Uh, there's another one on Showtime called Operation Odessa, and that is the Colombian cartel buying a... Uh, submarine from the Russians so they can use it for distribution of their narcotics. And he did a third one called The 7-5. I saw that one. Yeah. And uh, he's the same guy. So he's got... Wow. He's got a good track record. Yeah. And these documentaries are hitting like crazy right now. They've been coming out a lot over the last five or six years or so. And uh, the one came out about the the 92 uh, riots. That was great. I think it was called LA-92. Uh, the seven that was a there's one about the ones of cops in Brooklyn, all kinds of good stuff. So, yeah, that, that 75. I watched the 75 one first. I'm saying, how in the heck does he get these people to talk? Yeah, and in Operation Odessa, he had the middleman up there talking at the time that he interviewed him. He interviewed him in the in a private plane on a tarmac somewhere in the world where the FBI. Interpol, the Colombian government, 
every the Russians, everybody's looking for him. Fuck that. And this and he sitting on tarmac talking to him, saying the only mistake he made was underestimating how long fifty million dollars would last him or whatever money. Yeah. Money. Because he ripped he took their money <laughs> and just ripped it off. That's unbelievable. And, and so he, he got this and he got this uh DEA agent to open up and lay out an awful lot of people in the Kiki Camarino and it it's a tough one. Yeah, definitely. How he does it. And this just flowed. I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm giving all the credit to them. This documentary that he did on the Night Stalker just flowed. Yeah, without, it really did. Without giving, with giving minimal attention to the suspect. Yes, very true. It was all about the investigation and the those that surrounded yeah. the victims, the citizens, the news media, how they handle things. So it's an excellent piece. So he's got a track record. So yeah. he's I'm sure they're working something else. Oh yeah. And everyone I know who's watched it, it's you can tell there's a lot of talent in the way it was like uh crafted, like a like just, just small little interviews and they ended with like some like great suspenseful music. And like every episode at the end, it's it's you couldn't watch this and just watch fucking one episode. No yeah, one did that. That's what I've heard. No that, one did that. Which is which is why it's a fucking killer. Like everyone loved it. Like it as soon as it ends and it ends with like some like genius piece like it's either you saying something or uh, uh Frank Salerno saying something and everyone's like fuck. I, I got to watch the rest of this shit and there's 4 hours of my day but no one cared. Like everyone I know they saw it all in one day. Yeah. Good. Yeah, which is great. So going forward for you um what do you have a uh, like what opportunities? I know you spoke earlier about like you have certain opportunities coming up just and this kind of added to it, like you have speeches coming up and all kinds of cool stuff. I've been asked to speak uh, around the U.S. right now. A few places I've got conferences lined up in San Antonio, uh, Dallas, Texas. I've got people asking me to do other things in uh, the East Coast. Uh, there's just a lot of requests, a lot of requests for podcasts, a lot of requests. And the way I look at things... As if I'm free, and as long as I don't have to pay, you know, put money out of my pocket, I'll help anybody I can. Yeah. You know, it's still time to give back. And if I can make somebody's life a little easier or give them some entertainment or enlighten them as to what really goes on, uh, then I can do it. Right. And you, I remember you mentioned, too, you were like in a – you were actually in talks with a Felipe Esparza. That dude is fucking yeah. hilarious, man. The, the, um, Felipe Esparza – uh, he, these guys, uh, a lot of the comedians, uh, Alonzo Boat. Oh yeah, he's funny. Know, he's, these guys are funny. These are guys. Jeff Garcia. Yeah. These are Holy all shit. guys that uh, years ago I would go ahead and bring them together and put on comedy shows for to raise money as fundraisers. And I don't know that anybody loves comedy as much as I do. I mean, yeah. I laugh. Jeff Garcia. I'll go to a comedy show and he will rip me a new one. <laughs> he will literally rip me a new one. And nobody laughs more than me. Right. I got a loud laugh. Uh, I remember Rudy was doing a comedy show at the Taste of Texas. And we knew he was going to be. So we got there early. I wanted good seats, get something to eat and enjoy. And Rudy got there. 
And a buddy of mine had said something, and he was saying, Gil, what's the name of that restaurant right there at Olympic and Woods? And I said, or he said, what's the name? There was a restaurant there. I said, yeah. He said, what was it? I said, Olympic and Woods. And he said, what's the name? I said, Frank's. And he goes, oh, that's the wrong thing to say. I said, why? He says, because that's what my wife said it was. And I told her it was something else. I told her it was someplace else. And he says, and I'm wrong, which made me just laugh, you fool. <laughs> you know, and, I, and I just started laughing out loud. Well, simultaneously, I didn't realize Rudy Moreno had just gotten there. And he told the person at the desk, he says, oh, I see Gil Carrillo's here. He says, where? He says, I don't know. I just heard him laughing, though. <laughs> so, so they, uh, Tony Valdez, who, play, who was interviewed on this uh, documentary from Channel 11, then, mm-hmm. uh, he would always, and I did a half-hour talk show with him once, always trying to make me laugh because you've got that outgoing laugh. you got a funny laugh. It's yeah. catchy. So I just... Whatever anybody wants me to do, and I'm happy to do it for them, or I'm just as happy staying home. That's awesome. And uh, lastly, I wanted to ask um, if you had any uh, if you had any advice, especially for people looking to do like that type of gig that you did. I mean, you're the guy. You're the guy who's seen it all. You've seen the, the worst cases. You've you've been on TV. You've been not off TV. You have to do the dirty work. You've had to do be in front of the media. Everything for someone going into like that specific position, like homicide or whatever. What kind of Kind of advice, but at least would you give him now if it's even, you know? I can only give him advice to get to homicide. And mm-hmm. They have to have the understanding that homicide is not a job. Homicide is a lifestyle because you give up your you give up your life uh, because they're they don't care where you're at, what you're doing, what time of day. They don't want to hear about your family. They don't want to hear about a birthday because your dedication is to that decedent. And you have to give up everything to try and solve that case. And uh, a shout-out to a dear friend of mine who just passed away this last week. He was a guy, Don Garcia, who broke me in an homicide bureau in 1981. Uh, We worked together for three years. He was a great man, taught me everything, instilled uh, that pride and instilled the working habits that you have to form if you're going to be good. And uh, I was the best man at two out of three of his marriages as his life went on. And uh, he was just never met a man that didn't like him. He was a great guy. And he said, you will attend every autopsy. That's your case. You speak on behalf of the decedent. You make sure it run right been there about 12 years on Christmas Day because they run 365 days a year at the coroner's office. Christmas morning, I have an autopsy. And Don is not my partner. He's working with someone else. And I go down to the coroner's office and I look, and my autopsy is going on, and there are a few others going on, but I don't see any cops. All the attendants and the doctors are working. I'm the only cop in this room. And I look to the other room where they cut, and there's Don Garcia, the guy that broke me in. And I walked up to him and I said, Donald, you fill my heart with pride because you not only talk the talk, you walk the walk. He said, what are you talking about? I said, you instilled in me that I had to be here and for every autopsy. And I said, today's Christmas day. 
and I'm here to attend my autopsy. And I turn around and you're here for your autopsy still. And he looked at me and he says, yeah, I look around and we're the only two stupid motherfuckers that are, st- <laughs> that are here. And we just both laughed. Uh, but you need to, it's a lifestyle. You need to be able to give up an awful lot. And the second part is learn to write. Everything has to be documented and you have to be able to document it very meticulously because when this goes to court, defense attorney is going to rip you a new one on every T that you don't cross or every I that you don't dot. So you have to be able to write good and remember that it's much more important to listen than it is to talk. So you have to have the ability to listen and understand why people did the thing they did. Don't condone it. You just understand it. And if you can do that and listen and document it, you'll be successful. Just treat people the way you'd like to be treated if they were in their shoes. Don't be quick. Don't be lazy. That's great. I also uh, wanted to note, too, that I think it's awesome that you have all these people that you remember that helped you get to where you were like just just from when you were a kid, you know, the the deputy on the block and then, you know, your your partners. I think that's huge. And anyone who's been successful, that's that's like their common theme that they have. When they talk about their success, it's always about the others that got me to where I'm at. And I think that's I've, amazing. I've been blessed. I've been surrounded by heroes. I'm just a regular guy. It's those other people Professor Bob Morneau, who's mentioned in the documentary, you know, these are people. Uh, and the highlight of my whole career was just before I retired, uh, I was able to uh, be the keynote speaker at an academy graduation. And it was so awesome. And I told the young graduates then that. You're going to go through this job and you're going to see some ugly, ugly things, the ugly side of life. And it could be a dead child. It could be somebody beaten to death. It just, you don't know what you're going to see and it's going to really traumatize you. And you're not going to be feeling good. You're going to go home that day. What you don't know is your wife has had a traumatic day. And what has happened to her is just as important as to what's happened to you. You are nothing without someone to support you, whether it's a wife, a girlfriend, a mother, a father, a friend. And don't ever forget where you came from. So if you can do that, you'll be successful. And I'm only here because I've been surrounded by heroes and a great wife. She's what's kept us everything here. She's what keeps me grounded. She reminds me, you know, I gotta remain grounded. That's beautiful. It's perfectly said. And uh, thing with that, I think we're I think we're good. I think we have a good interview. Thanks for coming. Sounds good to me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, of course, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you guys got some uh, a good time out of this, man. I actually did. I had a great time, man. You almost made me emotional at the end right now. I feel like a pussy. I'm about to cry. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in. Um, this is another episode of Alternate Take. 
Hope you guys got what you wanted to get from it, and uh, I'll see you guys soon. Peace.